You can listen to The Professional Left on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There's a PayPal button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. This is the podcast for February 1st, 2013. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from just outside David Brooks's GOP 2.0 pup tent and canteen, it's the professional left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. Hello, baby. How you doing? Hi. All right. We just do this for the love of the game, right? Right. Recording, not recording. <laughs> we are recording. <laughs> you know, if, if people knew how many dozens of perfectly good podcasts we've thrown away covering... All this stuff, week, yeah, <laughs> covering all the stuff that they value most. You know, we, yeah. we did like six hours on labor relations. No, we did not. We did seven hours on drones <laughs> and technology. Uh, I did a complete retrospective of a science fiction from 1952 to 1975, or maybe I just dreamed it. I think you did, yeah. And what was it with the kids dreaming about lemons last night? It was that was very it was very interesting because I think it's I, the Italian ice. I do. I, I, I bet you're. I absolutely bet you're right because. I think the eldest said something about strawberries and lemons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the uh, middle child uh, had a very extensive dream about a perfume shop. And yeah, she's... there was this flavor, this flavor. And she was wide awake. She was talking. And then there was dragon wing perfume. They gave you wings. And I had anti-fairy powers. And I went – and it was just amazing. Her imagination is not – has no limits. So. No. But then it was like – and then I was at this place where everything was orange. But I got lemon lip gloss or lemon something <laughs> – like, which is interesting until I go across the hall to wake up eldest and he's like, yeah, strawberries and, and lemons would be good. Yeah. Well, it's that Italian ice you brought home from the grocery store yeah. that came in lemon and strawberry. I think they had some before bed and it makes you dream about these. Or things, so. maybe, maybe like Sugar Boy, we're all inside of a farting dog's dream. <laughs> we could be. We could be. Maybe. Except in this case, it would be a pooping cat's dream. But still. But still, and and you know, we don't have to record the beginning anymore. We we can just we're 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 podcasting right now. Oh really? Yeah. So we don't have to talk about live from. No, let's just go. Holy with crap! It. That's yeah, amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, we want to do props to Skippy the Bush Kangaroo and Batocchio at Vagabond Scholar because yeah. both of them remind us that this Sunday is Blog Roll Amnesty Day, and the lovely thing about Blog Roll Amnesty Day, I hope you don't mind if I just riff on this no 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 the the lovely thing is that bloggers appreciate uh those who have less traffic than they do uh -huh. and it is about appreciating the democracy of the internet and and we want to uh let you know that at crooks and liars a blog that both of us contribute to from time to time yep uh they do that every day at yes. mike's blog roundup every morning and mike and doesn't Mike doesn't do blog. Mike, it's been memorialized. It has been memorialized. He is now uh, off with Bonnie Raitt playing Hammond Organ. <laughs> and Mike left us this legacy of linking to small blogs. And yeah. so uh, different bloggers, I, all of my blog friends, a lot of them, uh -huh. have volunteered one week at a time. We have a schedule, and one week at a time, different people do the roundup. And we still call it Mike's Blog Roundup. And, and I know I've said this before, and I'm I'm a shameless promoter of Crooks and Liars because, A, it's awesome, and, B, it does stuff that nobody else does. Yeah. But yeah. part of its DNA, I mean, really, a, a crucial part of its DNA has always been finding small gems, uh, bloggers who are writing in obscurity, writing about topics that don't get a lot of coverage, and bringing those to the surface. And not in a sort of blog aggregation, no. whale-eating krill way, but in a really loving wealth. kind of, yeah. Yep. yep, sharing the wealth. And uh, John Amato has very kindly allowed me on Saturday nights to do a podcast roundup. Yep. So, and not, those are not always smaller podcasts, They've, but they're things that I thought that uh, podcast listeners would like to see, so yeah. like to listen to. So uh, we're grateful for that. And so Blog Roll Amnesty Day is the 3rd of February. There is a sordid history to Blog Roll Amnesty Day, which I'm sure Skippy the Bush Kangaroo will be uh, denoting. So yeah. go over and read about that. But, but it is part of our internet tradition. It so is. We should, and we should and honor it. we're very grateful to both uh, Skippy and Batocchio for reminding us of that. And uh, happy Blog Roll Amnesty Day to everyone. It's like the Night of the Long Knives, Blue Gal. 
<laughs> no, it is. Except, except it's not in any way like that. But <laughs> the night of is, no stars. Yeah. yeah, it is part it, of our tradition. It and is. Should we it should is. remember where we come from? I want to talk about uh, today. We're going to talk about families, and we're going to yes. talk about um, social engineering a little bit. Uh, but first of all, could we talk for a moment about um, John McCain? Would you mind if we started off with John McCain? Well, first of all, no. Because <laughs> this is, what is this now? Meet the press? Yeah. We, just roll <laughs> out. we have to have John McCain on. <laughs> in, his, in his Hannibal Lecter suit, we just roll him out in his straight jacket and pop his mask off. <laughs> oh, that would make, make a good rah, Photoshop. Rah, rah, rah. Dude, that would make a really good Photoshop. I've already done my Photoshops for the day. I've oh. Already- well, Shelly Adelson with a finger later. puppet. Yeah, that was awesome too. But I, I think I'll do, I'll try. Yeah. Now that I've said it on the podcast, I'll as long as you can see David Gregory operating the two wheeler, <laughs> rolls him out, then that the jumpsuit. Yeah. 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 Striped jumpsuit. Yeah. Because he, he, oh god, it really it. Uh, the only reason to talk about John McCain is to get an insight into what the sour bitter heart of the GOP looks like. Yeah, well, and and I didn't know this, but Rachel Maddow pointed out that Chuck Hagel was co-chair of McCain's 2000 campaign. Yeah. President when Bush beat him and then didn't endorse McCain in 2008. Yep. So he must have seen that the dementia was setting in at that point and decided, or, you know, he changed his mind about the war. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you between in in that eight year period, it became clear that the Republican Party under Bush had gone into war for profit. Yeah, and had lied about Hagel it. Lied, lied about it, and Hagel wouldn't didn't agree with that, and publicly didn't agree with that, which is of course is breaking all the rules. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that, and so, you know, Grandpa Walnuts yeah. <laughs> yesterday th- we're we're recording this Friday morning decided. That we should relitigate Brilliant. the Iraq War because that's in front of that's everybody. a good idea. Yeah, that's a really good idea. But you know, like he's relitigating Sarah Palin. It really is. You know, he he is, but he's he's not going anywhere. No, he gets to be a senator until he drops in his traces, and that's I you know that thank you Arizona for keeping this crazy bitter nut job you know employed, but but you can see in his eyes this this really a very particular kind of tragedy that here is a guy who cannot face reality and has enough power at his command that he can just bludgeon reality to its knees when it, when it makes him mad and, and does it publicly. And he, he really, I mean, whatever he did yesterday, whatever the, the meta message is, he really embarrassed himself because he, he is every bit the petulant, bitchy, cranky old lunatic that we all said he was. And this is the guy that the GOP nominated for president. Well, and and let's be clear, too. I know a lot of people want to analyze um, Hegel's failure to respond or be angry in in, uh, contrast to McCain. Including me. I think he did a poor job of punching back. He did a really good job punching back the day before. But, you know, the thing is, today we're talking about McCain and not about Hegel. And we're not talking about anything Hegel said. Yeah. And I... I think I think that was calculated. Whether it worked or not, sure, doesn't really matter because the Senate's going to confirm Hagel. Yeah, and no one is questioning he- really. No one with any sense is questioning, and no one inside the Beltway. I will say this too. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Todd is not questioning Hagel's qualifications. Well, no one is, which is no. a shame because there's things to, to there's there are really serious things to talk about. Yeah, sure. But sure. Hagel, for all of this, remember this is a job interview. Yeah. This yeah. is a panel interview with a bunch of people who not only want to piss on your grave, but they want to hurt your boss. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I, I disinterred one of my favorite words dug up from underground, um, disinterred a post that I, I wrote in 2006. And it's up on my site and uh, you can go read it if you'd like. But it is Matt Stoller. I clipped from him from also from February. This is almost exactly uh, seven years ago, 2006, February 2006, when Senator John McCain just went apeshit on Senator Barack Obama for nothing. He just he just went completely off on him and put it in writing and was bitter and sarcastic and every bit the mean 
cranky nut job that he really is. And people were just stunned at the time. Like, why is this guy going off on what is essentially a minor quibble from this guy from Barack Obama? Junior Senator, right. Yeah. What what is what first of all, Senate cordiality and blah, blah, blah. But what what the hell is the burr under his saddle? And you have to remember that John McCain was forced to be George Bush's footstool for eight years. And he was forced to go kiss uh, Jerry Falwell's ass to be president. He was forced to sell out every one of his principles and kiss the ass of people who had run campaigns against his daughter. Yeah. To beat him in a primary. Yep. And beat him. And now this uh, lazy, drunken asshole of uh, the, the junior. George Bush Jr. gets to have the job that John McCain should have had. And John McCain has to light his cigarettes and bring him coffee for eight years. And then finally, he's endured eight years of this shithead and and trashing his own reputation, completely going all in with with George Bush and being completely identified with the Iraq debacle, completely identified with all the lies and all the bullshit. And he's stuck defending the one little corner of it he thinks he still can fight over. The surge. Yeah. Yes. Which was yes. essentially buying off people who were shooting at us to stop yeah. shooting at us. And along comes this young man from Illinois who who laps him, who runs right past him and is on his way to becoming president. And McCain can't fucking stand it. He can't. Well, his personality doesn't ever forgive the slightest gripe anyway. No. So. But where does this young punk get off? First of all, voting against the greatest war America ever fought. (laughs) And secondly, suddenly becoming – and everybody likes him. Everybody liked – remember in the Senate, lots of people liked Barack Obama. He was friendly. He got along. People were talking about him as presidential timber right after 2004 or right right after 2004. And McCain is just rotting on the vine, Mm -hmm. waiting for his turn. Here comes my turn. And his turn was handed to him by George W. Bush. George W. Bush, who crushed the economy – screwed a war, lied us into wars, and then botched those wars, handed this catastrophe off to, to McCain, and then went off to to, uh, to Texas to, to goof off and play golf. And McCain's stuck with this burning sack of shit on one side, and this young man who has run right past him, who's going to beat him at the one job that he thinks he deserves more than anything in the world, and is never, ever going to have. And now he's and also John McCain's personality shows that he's in love with the Hail Mary pass. Yeah. And so his Hail Mary pass is Sarah Palin. <laughs> and, you know, and so. Which is a disaster. As, I mean, he he oh, yeah. will he will never forgive himself. That is one thing I have heard about him huh? is that he does not forgive himself for unleashing Sarah Palin on America. He he really recognizes the colossal error that that was yeah who who knew that john mccain would be nostalgic for the keating five days right. <laughs> when he was uh, you know corrupt loser who, corrupt senator another corrupt senator who had to suddenly get religion on campaign reform to cover up the fact that he was you know not exactly a maverick but that's the point of talking about john mccain is he look at that guy that beaten up weathered bitter um dead ender mm-hmm. a regime dead ender if there ever was one that's the GOP. Yep. That's who they are. And they still have enough power to make life unpleasant for the rest of us. So what we need is a new GOP. Driven we out. do. We do. We so need a new GOP. We need, we need 2.0. Who could possibly um, form this and, and make sure that it's uh, ideologically acceptable to Northeasterners? I don't know. Perhaps <laughs> someone who lives in the Northeast. <laughs> Perhaps someone with a sturdy oak tree in his massive backyard where he could build a super awesome tree fort. Big enough for his Rolodex. Yes. (laughs) And call it the No Homers Club, which (laughs) all Simpsons Simpsons fans will will remember was the club set up specifically to keep Homer Simpson out. (laughs) And so, yeah, David Brooks has a super awesome, cool idea to build a tree fort in his backyard that will have secret handshakes and passwords. It'll be awesome. And it will be a, a, a refuge, a respite, if you will, uh, an organizing locus for all seven of those Northeastern Republicans who are simultaneously horrified by the massive central government overreach of Barack Obama, which doesn't exist, and 
the conservative party losing its fucking mind and becoming the John Birch Society and the New Confederacy, which does exist. So it's one more effort on the part of David Brooks to who is now completely delusional. Except he's not. He's not really delusional. He's No, I don't think so at all. I think this is again very calculated because what happened this week as a result of David Brooks's column and this is, you know, we 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 get grief from our listeners about talking about David Brooks so much and I understand that. Yep. It's your it's your seeming obsessive interest. Yep. Let's just say that. Just one of our one of our <laughs> Listeners wrote that it took him a while to understand my seeming obsessive interest with David Brooks. And my only comment <laughs> to him was, what do you mean seeming? Seeming. <laughs> and you need to go and look up um, Asperger's obsessive interest yeah. to kind of understand where we are with this. But yeah, uh, what is what is as interesting to me as the fact that David Brooks sort of went off this ledge is how many people use that column as a springboard to talk about how to save the Republican Party and how to change the message and whether it's the message or is it something else. But we don't really know what that could be. Right. And no one ever approaches it as, except for one person. I heard one person, um, the guy from Studio 360, yeah. uh, whose name I can't remember right now, uh, he said... This is the beginning of the Roosevelt Coalition rebuilding itself, and it's made up of immigrants. Yeah, yeah. And the te- the, the Franklin Roosevelt Coalition. Franklin Roosevelt, FDR's coalition was without, made up of immigrants. Without the Southern whites. And the right, no. Bigots. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he didn't need them. Yeah. And this uh, Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson is on. Uh, MSNBC in the mornings with well, you have met. Wagoner. I have met him. Yes, he he won the Langham Prize, uh, which is something my ex husband put together, and his, one of his historical fiction books won the Langham Prize, and I was able to go as the ex wife. I was actually at the dinner as his ex wife. That's how we get along. It's all right. Uh, but, but speaking of Asperger's and obsessive, yeah, uh, Kurt, right. Kurt Anderson. <laughs> Kurt Anderson, who who would totally who would totally acknowledge that? Sure. Know? Um, said, you know, this is the rebuilding of the um, coalition, the Roosevelt Coalition that elected Congresses from 1939 to 1968. You know, it's 30, 40 years when there was only the Democrats just had this lock on the House and they don't now because of gerrymandering. But you're looking at you know, and I and I'm not going to say permanent Democratic majority because that's, you know, gets into Karl Rove territory. The kiss of death, yeah. The hubris, the hubris of Karl Rove, but certainly, once you, you know, you know how they used to say if you have a child until they're seven, you have them for life. Catholic Church, yeah. You know, yeah. if you have a voter at 23, 24 years old, between 18 and 25, you've got them. Yeah. I mean, that's they are going to habitually vote. That way. Or they need a big reason to change. Not, uh, right. They need yeah. a big reason to change. Yeah. And so this this is not let's find out how to fix the Republican Party or make this more palatable to Democrat <laughs> to, to suburban Philadelphia voters, which is all we're talking about, really. Uh, this is this is about a coalition of immigrants, Hispanics, gays, you know. African Americans, obviously, gays and are not women. immigrants, honey. And well, I know, but they yeah. are. They kind yeah. of are. Yeah. <laughs> well, outsiders. They kind of understand that they are right. They are. These are, these are our outsiders. They are. Our... They are a new coalition of voters yeah. publicly. Let's yeah. say it. Let's put it that way. And that this coalition is here to stay. Yeah. And that's something that the mainstream media cannot admit. That one side is going to dominate, and that side is going to be a liberal, well, co- well, more liberal coalition, yeah, well, it's a more side. liberal coalition than, and, well, and, particularly on gay rights yeah. and race. Yeah. I mean, there's just no question, and probably immigration, and probably a few other things, yeah, and probably, yeah. and that coalition, and leads, probably social security and Medicare too, and hopefully yeah. climate change and other yeah, really, yeah. and the, and on the other side. The and I'll, I'll I'll just repeat it because I'm obliged to repeat it contractually obliged 
to repeat it every podcast. <laughs> Centrism and the false equivalence of both sides do it is the central pillar of the Beltway media. It is the big lie that makes all the little lies Republicans tell possible. Because the poison Republicans sell comes in two parts. The first part is reality doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, the, the shit we said yesterday doesn't count. We can change our mind, we can flip over, we can do terribly atrocious things, and we we can shed our skin every every other day. We can flip around, and and people who disagree with us are moochers and and takers and and welfare queens and so forth. And every time you find anything they say objectionable, kick the second part kicks in, which we yeah, have. But liberals are worse. Yep. You know the abused spouse. Yeah, you could leave, but remember, the outside is so much worse than the abuse you're taking here. So go ahead and leave. But liberals, and that second part has been fully integrated into the media critique of politics. Well, no and that's why I think that David Brooks's column last week was calculated. It was calculated to change the conversation from, "Oh my God." You know, the Republican Party is pushing Ben, still pushing Benghazi. Uh huh. And that's all they've got. No, we have to talk about 2.0. Oh, okay. Well, let's change the conversation and talk about 2.0. What, yeah. what, what will the new Republican Party look like? Oh my God. Why well, would, why would you have that conversation? Well, and that, that it serves so many purposes. It serves exactly. so many different um, constituencies, yeah. primarily people who, like David Gregory, David Brooks, all the usual suspects in the media who do not want to relitigate the past, who don't want anybody digging around in their, no. uh, in their archives finding that they, are, they, they created this problem. Their fingerprints, David Brooks' fingerprints are all over the Republican Party. David Brooks, years ago, was writing Back about how... The de decayed economy. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, I mean, the Shuttered Bush tax factories. cuts. We're yep. going to have, yep. we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna have uh, surpluses forever. The Bush tax cuts are sustainable. Anybody who disagrees with Iraq is a traitor and a lunatic and, and is obviously delusional. Plus, George W. Bush is reforming the GOP and breaking that, that libertarian fever and on and on and on and on. Every couple of years, David Brooks writes a column about how this GOP renaissance is just around the corner. And really the problem is that liberals are really the are at least half the problem. This is not and liberals get more and more phantasmagorical as he describes them. They 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 have no relationship to reality because he has a brand to protect. Yep. And his brand consists of him and a bunch of jagoffs like him who live in very big houses in the suburbs of DC and New York. Yep. And he keeps telling them over and over again, no, no, we're a massive coalition and we're being assaulted on both sides. And they, this is a fantasy they desperately want to tell themselves because if anybody starts busting out the calipers and the rulers and starts measuring, just measuring what they have said publicly against reality, David Brooks would never, ever have another job. David Gregory would be fired tomorrow if anybody ever held him, him to account for any of the bullshit he does. But they don't. And one last Philip I'll toss in is Andrew Sullivan, who couldn't help himself uh, a couple days ago, wrote, you know, his his biweekly column on how MSNBC and Fox are just the same. Yeah, yeah. That because, was hilarious. Because they have to be. Because yeah. if they're not, that means you've been on the wrong side. If there's no wrong side, if both sides are equally wrong, then you can't hold me to account for anything I say or do. But if there has clearly been a right side and a wrong side for like 40 years, and you've been choosing the wrong side that entire time, then maybe you're a really good bus driver or a really good uh, traffic cop, but you're a terrible public intellectual. You're a terrible pundit. You're completely incompetent at your chosen profession. And the minute you start framing the question like that, lots of people get very, very uncomfortable about losing their very, very nice gigs in the media, which is why they simply do not allow that question to formulate in any public forum. Can I get you to respond to one of your commenters um, on this David Brooks column? Because sure. I, one of them I thought was just outstanding. Rick commented at your blog and said, uh, I was going to say, don't worry, Brooks will forget about all of this just in time to paste a Christy Rubio bumper yeah. sticker on his forehead for 2016. Uh -huh. But then I realized that he'll simply write a column that proclaims that Christy Rubio Jindal Martinez are exactly the kind of reformed second GOP he was talking about. Of course. Absolutely. And they, he will force them into that mold or for, you know, forget about whatever mold he just wrote. 
Yeah. And lo and behold, no need for that second wing because Christy Rubio is the second GOP. And they will deliver. And that's how us. they reinvent themselves. Well, the um, the the I, I will I'll get a little obscure now, but for a reason. And the obscure thing, and this is where everybody should take at least half a drink <laughs> because Jorge Borges is uh, Jorge Luis Borges is a magic realist writer, which you could call a science fiction writer plausibly in the same mold as uh, Edgar Allan Poe, for example. Everybody uses 1984 as this as their metaphor. Lots of people do, which is a perfectly legitimate one. But there's a more obscure and interesting one uh, written by Jorge Luis Borges. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, called Clan Ukbar Orbis Tertius. And we will link to that at Driftglass's blog so that you don't have to write that down or try to spell it. It's about a fictional – and he writes about the power of words, the power of, of literacy, the power of imagination to literally transform the world for ways that are often not good. But he writes – this is a fictional story about a massive intellectual conspiracy to invent a world. And – and the people involved start sneaking into the encyclopedia and into dictionary and into museums, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm doing this from memory. Artifacts and languages and treatises and histories of this completely fake world called Orbis Tertius. And they gradually transform the earth and the population of the earth into the inhabitants of this completely fictional world by virtue of tampering with history, tampering with people's memories – and simply rewriting the public record so that this has always been true. And for anybody who's read more than 10 David Brooks columns or Tom Friedman columns or any other uh, notorious hack who operates completely with impunity, you will notice that no matter what position he takes on any given day, when his pet project goes sideways, um, David Brooks will always write its his recollected history of what happened in a way that is the most damning to liberals. Mm-hmm. So, for example, climate change. Who Who is most opposed to climate change? Would it be the Republican Party? Yes, it would. Why does David Brooks, who's the chief villain in David Brooks's narrative of why we've done nothing on climate change? Al Gore. <laughs> Al Gore made it political and therefore drove all these nice, reasonable people away by his relentless politicization. Who who actually what college actually had a child molester in their football program for decades? Was it the protective hierarchy of that college that caused these things to go unreported for decades, as is true with the Catholic Church? No, no, no. It was the bad morals of the hippies in the 60s that caused these problems. Because that led to selfishness. Was it (laughs) – is the Republican Party intractable and awful and mean and cruel? No, no, no. They are – Barack Obama is divisive. Barack Obama is divisive. He's causing them to be (laughs) – You hear that a lot. And you hear that everywhere. (laughs) And and nobody just bitch slaps David Brooks on camera and says, why the fuck do you keep lying? And the answer is because there's really good money in it. It's really, really a good dollar. So no matter what disaster he is documenting today, in a month or two or three or four, he will rewrite the history of it in such a way that makes liberals partially or fully responsible for what is clearly not their fault or for what they were clearly opposed to. He is very carefully and deliberately over the course of many years, and people like him. Again, he's a touchstone for an entire movement among conservatives. Well, and I was going to say he has a humongous number of collaborators. Yeah. Oh, these take are... him seriously and quote him. And, and help him out and help. Including, including a large number of people at MSNBC, you know, the liberal Fox. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, it, it's not it's not a it's not a given lie by a given pundit on a given day that's troubling. It is this massive trend towards very deliberately rewriting their own history to make them the heroes of a fantasy that never happened and make liberals the the Emmanuel Goldstein to quote you know go to 1984 to the the permanent villain of their morality play and they they and the problem is not that they're trying to do that the problem is they're getting away with that and so. Five or 10 or 15 years from now, the history of this era will have been written as far as the public is concerned, as far as historians are concerned, by people like David Brooks. Yeah. And that history will look an awful lot like 
well, there are all these wonderful things we should have done, but the goddamn liberals, along with a small group of fringe Republicans, were what caused the problems that you're experiencing now. And I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> I want to yeah. live in a world where people are held responsible for the things they said and did, and there's some measure of accountability for what they say and do. So the, and the only way to stop that world from happening is by interceding now right. as, the, as right. the lies are being created. And, and repeating that these are lies and here's why. And we're living in this right now. So we know that he is not reflecting reality for the time. Well, and and I was, yeah, I was that's thinking, why I liked Rick's comment so much, which is he's already written the column that says Marco Rubio is the new Republican. Yeah. yeah. And the, the thing that that the, when talking about how the GOP has lost its friggin' mind, which is now actually a thing, people are willing, everyone's going full drift glass. Yeah, except and here, here's the important part. In journalism, as I understand it, used to be, who, what, when, where, why, how, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Journalism is putting an itty-bitty, this is mainstream Beltway journalism, is putting an itty-bitty toe into the what part of that. But they will not talk about who or when or why. Yep. They will not name names. Well, because because that's who, it's they're part of it. They're the conspirators, yeah. And they will, so they... It, the reality of the the deep bigoted psychosis of the right has become undeniable at this point. The, the tumor has pierced the skin. It's now got a little face and it's doing a dance on your chest and there's no way to ignore it anymore. But they will not talk. An entire industry is devoted to avoiding discussing the subject of who caused this to happen, how long has it been going on, and why are they doing it? And those are the questions that are absolutely toxic. And those are, of course, the most important ones to ask. All right. All right. So let's talk about uh, social engineering. Let's do, do you that. mind if we go to that? No. Because we, I, I was I woke up one morning thinking about Newt Gingrich this ah, week. And that's just please tell I, me. I have to stop. <laughs> but I, I was thinking about him calling the Ryan budget right wing social engineering before he demanded that that statement be erased from history and that anyone who made an ad about it was lying. So I want to talk about the fact that uh, right-wingers are wanting to uh, resolve the abortion issue by closing abortion clinics. Yeah. And that, that you know, they want to resolve economics by kicking the poor harder. Yeah. And, and David Brooks wants to fix anything that's wrong with history by kicking the hippies. By throwing sociology at it. Yeah. 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 But involving the hippies. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And what Barack Obama and what the Democratic Party and what liberals, I should say what liberals want to do, because sometimes the Democratic Party is not cooperative with this. No, sometimes they're, they oppose what we want. They oppose what we want to do. Um, and Barack Obama as well. Left-wing social engineering says, let's make birth control available. Let's make affordable housing available. And we know that when housing is affordable and people have decent jobs, they settle down and get married. And yeah. this hierarchy of needs... We were talking about about the the long history of that. Yeah. Well, I had been thinking about, I don't know if you remember, uh, Robert McNeil back in the 80s did a series called uh, The Story of English. And it was fascinating to me. I never forgot this. He was talking about this modern day couple getting married and how intermarriage between different uh, dialects led to new language, new pronunciations. And, and, and you understand that, that the difference between beef being, so, being served at a table and a cow in the field had to do with French noblemen. Right. You know, and, and fr- when you were in the house serving the, the meat to the, to the Lord, it was boeuf, it was beef. But when you were out in the field with your friends and you were all Anglo, it was, it was cattle. Uh-huh. And so context, context, context and class and, and intermarriage with different people, Scots and Irish and English and French and people intermarrying meant that there was different kinds of language and dialect that developed. And you can trace that. But they were using the example of this modern couple getting married and saying that like everyone since the days of Hadrian's Wall. This couple did not get married until they had a house. Yep. And when housing is affordable and people have a stable income, they settle down and get married. That this is what happens. It's uh-huh. just 
love and marriage, you know, it's just, it, and that may be changing long-term for other reasons, but one of the reasons that people aren't getting married is because they can't afford it. They can't afford housing and they can't afford that middle class. We're going to have a child and raise it and, and be a stable, what what David Brooks considers the ideal, the stable two parent family in the suburbs. Yes. People can't afford that. Not, not when we've taken uh, middle-class jobs with middle-class benefits away from people who are of reproductive age. Yeah, and, and if you're of a certain age, mm-hmm. um, uh, let me just uh, misquote William Gibson, science fiction writer. <laughs> everybody says, take a drink. Everybody take a drink. It's not a science fiction quote, but he was talking about um, sort of how, how, how much harder I think it is to write science fiction. Precisely because the future has be, has gotten a lot more immediate and a lot more unpredictable, and he said something like, "We don't have futures like our grandparents had futures. Yeah, they right, had futures. Right. We have risk management. Yep. And believe it or not, if you're under forty, you might not realize that once upon a time, your moms and dads really could sit down at a kitchen table when they were in their twenties and sort of plan out their lives. Yeah. Not in a rigid terribly awful, uh, constraining, straightjackety way, although that happened a lot. But they can sit down and say, okay, I'll be at this job for 22 years. Here's my union dues. Here's what I pay in. Here's my health care. Here are the predictable. Here's my pension. Here's my pension. Here are the periods when I will get a raise, probably, if I do a good job. I have to work really hard. I have to go to work every day. But I, I will be going to this job for the next X number of years, and here are the outcomes that we can predict and plan around. Yep. Here's where we can buy a house. Here's how we can pay for school. Yep. Here's how we can put our kids here and there. Here's the doctor. We can afford the doctor because we have good health care. This was a typical middle-class life. And I had a friend in high school whose parents did plan the last 15 years of their working life that they were going to move to Florida. And yeah. that's really what they wanted to do. We want to move to Florida. And they kept talking about it. And they... You, they both had, you know, union jobs. Yep. So they had a plan to do this, and they yep. actually did it. And and I'm sorry, but people under the age of 50 these days can't make those kind of plans. Well, there and, are no pensions to and, do that. And we have forgotten culturally that that such thing existed this as a yeah. normal thing. Now you might think it's bourgeois and it's boring and it's constraining and limiting. And believe me, I'm not nostalgic for a lot of that era. I'm not nostalgic for women being second class citizens or blacks being treated like servants. I don't want to have to have the national guard force schools to be integrated. Yeah. I'm not nostalgic for any of those things, but it is true that once upon a time in the living memory of people in this country, the middle class could be a stable, predictable thing and lead to stable, predictable outcomes. Now, the reason family planning comes into this is that once upon a time, this is my own pet theory, which you can take or leave as you choose, but once upon a time, the norm was an extended family in a small community. You had aunts and uncles and cousins and neighbors, and it wasn't urban versus rural exactly because there were plenty of neighborhoods in in the city. People used to sleep out in parks in groups when it was hot outside because there was no air conditioning. So I'm not making an urban or rural divide. I'm saying it was normal for there to be small villages of people, however they were bolted together, that protected each other and looked after each other and cared for each other and, and gossiped about each other and cheated on each other and killed each other. But it was that was the structure. And economic booms and busts would come and go, but that structure is reasonably stable and can withstand a lot of abuse when it comes to economic abuse and so forth. We decided as a country, almost unconsciously, but certainly to serve corporate interests, to rewrite our family software to make two parents, three kids in the suburbs highly mobile the norm. We broke apart that small community and the large extended family and took all of the safeguards built into that system and put them inside of a house with two adults. No more cousins, no more uncles, no more aunts, no more neighbors in a lot of cases who could look after your kids. Uh, a, a cultural norm that said, here's what a family should look like. And we did this during a time of unprecedented prosperity because, honestly, the only time nuclear families can survive is during times of great prosperity when you can have one adult working outside the home and providing for the economic sustenance of the entire family. And that's because – And one woman at home and a woman at absolutely. home. 
providing the sustenance and raising the children and doing all of that. And that is not necessarily ideal from a feminist standpoint. It just isn't. But, but if you, if you take a family and look at it simply as a utilitarian machine machine that does a couple of things to, to keep your culture going, Mm -hmm. the two things any family unit has to do is provide for its own economic protection. That's the cell wall. Yep. If you, if the cell wall is breached, the, the, the thing falls apart and dies. So it has to provide for its own economic sustenance, and it has to be able to produce the next generation. Right, reproduce. Yep. And those are the two things any family has to do. If you if you're a childless family, if you're an older couple that got married, it's fine. You you've taken care of the next generation problem by not having kids. That's well, and by paying taxes for public yeah. schools. Yeah. Exactly. So you've you've done that, right? You contributed right. to it, but as a part, you still get to be defined as a family under my definition. Yeah. yeah. Because you've taken care of the problem of the next generation by not participating in it directly right say but you're still a family you're a gay couple you want to adopt and this applies to any family line marriages group marriages polygamy polyamory gay straight it doesn't matter if you if your unit protects itself economically and provides for itself and takes care of the next generation in whatever way you choose to do you're a family what we did in this country after world war ii was to strip that machine down to its absolute bare components. Two parents, 3.2 kids or 2.2 kids, period, and and move them all over the country all the time, mobile, 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 mobile. And there's the problem. The problem is not that that's a bad family. That's how I was raised. That's how everybody I know was raised. But the minute you have an economic shock, like let's say an oil crisis Mm -hmm. in the 70s, that structure cannot survive. It shatters. There's no backup. There's no uncle. There's no aunt. There's no – because what you've done is you've outsourced everything else families used to do. You've outsourced daycare. You've outsourced security. You've outsourced everything. Well, and there's and there's no question that one way that conservatives and liberals unite is by yearning for not necessarily the 50s in terms of right. social norm, but – Yearning for a time of economic stability yes. is something that both liberals and conservatives want to do. And I, I think if you looked at – if if you wrote down what you think of as, as your ideal family structure, yours would, right. would include gays and lesbians. Absolutely. Yeah. But apart from that, uh, you and David Brooks would have a very similar look as to what an ideal family looked like. And, Absolutely. And how stable they were and that they had good jobs and they had yeah. – Stable children, then children went to good schools, oh, I, and I, on and on and on. I'd go further. I, I want, I want that family unit to be predictable and stable enough so that it can risk things. Right. Dad right. or mom or dad can start a business, yep. and if it doesn't work out, they don't lose everything. Yep. One broken leg does not wipe them out. They can actually be the entrepreneurial. Yep. If mom gets breast cancer, she doesn't have to sell her house yes. to pay for her health care. And right. so you have, you have. A little entrepreneurial, and if you don't want to work, if you don't want to be an entrepreneur, fine. You know, go be, go work at someone's company. I, I that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. But you, you abate the risks of being a member of this society as much as you can without making it impossible mm-hmm. for people to move or have social mobility or, or be creative. Well, the, and one of the things but, that made me think about all this, and and I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but sure, I wanted sure. to, I I read an article this week about how abortion has changed over time and that in the 70s when Roe v. Wade passed, most abortions were white women, yeah. uh, white single women who uh, didn't have children already and had you know, gotten pregnant and didn't want to have kids at that moment and so had an abortion. And so it was used as a kind of fail-safe against failed birth control. These days, the, the person having an abortion, generally speaking, is a woman of color who already has a child. Yeah. And so we could left-wing social, you know, the, the, the solution on the right is to close abortion clinics. Think about that. The solution on the right to the abortion problem of a single woman, single woman of color who has a child already and, and can't afford another one is to close abortion clinics. Yeah. The solution, be- the solution uh-huh. on the left is provide birth control. Uh-huh. Healthcare. Health care. Provide uh-huh. health care and birth control and, and give one of the this amazing study in St. Louis that I, I keep going back to, but the the idea that you present women, first of all, you give them a, a doctor's appointment with a checkup 
and you sit and you talk with them and have a conversation with them about do you, how do you want your pregnancies to go? And they found out women who who are single moms with one kid don't want to have any children for the next five years. Don't want to, ha- you know, or they're in school and they don't want to have any children for the next five years. And there are devices and there are ways that are very reliable. They have risks, but they're very reliable. And you can have a conversation with the woman about if you use this IUD, you won't get pregnant until we take it out. Right. And they found that women, 75% of the women in the study wanted that. They wanted to not have to take a pill every day, to not have to worry about whether their partner who, you know, stable or not stable, was using birth control or not, and that they just simply didn't want to get pregnant for years. And they took that option... (laughs) And abortion rates dropped among that group by 75 percent. Well, and and this this is a 71 percent. This is where we this is where conservatives broadly have put the cart way before the horse horse. and have become like the cargo cults of the South Seas. They 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 have confused the outcome of the prosperity that the 50s and 60s and 70s bequeathed to us with the the causes of those things. So if only we had two-parent families in suburbs, and yeah. we all went to church. And, yeah. well, you know what? That would be great, but but the here's the problem. You Make a list of all the things that that kind of family requires to be stable. Yeah. You have to have a stable job. You have to have decent child care, someone to care for the child. If it's mom, that's great. If it's dad, that's great. But somebody has to take care of the child and raise them. A decent public education system, a decent health care system. Etc. Well, you know what's happened in the last 40 years is, thank you, conservative supply side economics has has methodically destroyed every one of those things. And as and as so you pointed you out, wa- if you want to to play the blame game, as yeah. so many conservatives accuse the the right of uh, the left of doing, if if you want to socially engineer it so that women choose not to get abortions or yeah. choose to go into stable family. Choose to marry their partners. First of all, you got to provide affordable housing <laughs> if you want them to marry their partners. Yeah. If you want them to have a second child, you have to mandate paid maternity leave. Yes. For well, part-time of, work for people that all, have three jobs. You have to have. A, well, and let's get back to. That's absolutely right. Let's get back yeah. to what Susie Madrak said was yeah. I think oh, right yeah. on point, yeah. which she, is she did. Yeah. behind that unstable, disorganized neighborhood that horrifies people. You know wigs like David Brooks, which horrifies me too, are a bunch of empty factories where they used to have jobs and they don't have them anymore. And you can't just pretend that those two things have nothing to do with each other. And you can't look at the fact that there is, they have bleak futures. They're going, they're the working poor we're talking about. We're talking about people who do work two or three jobs just to keep body and soul together. And you can't keep saying that just, if we just beat them harder, Eventually, they'll get moral and stop leading these disordered lives. Bullshit. If you want those outcomes, you have to – if you're going to make it mandatory to keep a family unit together in the economic sense that both parents have to work full time, if that's what you think is – if that's what you have, then you have to provide for the children somehow. If you think it's important for one parent to stay home or have the option to stay home to take care of the children, then you have to make one income sufficient to take care of the family. It's that easy. And you have not made one income sufficient to rent an apartment. So that's – And if you have – The minimum wage has not been raised forever. No. And if you have – if your economic – and if your economic model strips away everything families need to be stable – and your cultural model is, well, if you fail, you're just a bad person. Yeah. Then you're just evil yeah. <laughs> and you need yeah. to shut up because yeah. you, the, if I want the same things you want. I want stable families in prosperous communities working good jobs with happy families and children at peace and that, 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 that. I want all those things. But those things require certain social and cultural support systems that are either internal to the family or external to the family. But you can't take them both away and ship all those jobs away and, and leave nothing in their way. You can take people's pensions away and blow them and tell them, I'm sorry, you can't afford to go to a doctor anymore. I'm sorry, your school sucks, but we're not going to do anything about that except give you a voucher. And then step back and say, now go be moral or we'll yeah. beat you harder. That yep. is just And by the reckless. way, we need entitlement reform. And the deficit. <laughs> well, but, but the thing is, 
that is another case where if you forced them to confront that reality, yeah, that this yeah. is the society you built. Yep. You built this, baby. Yeah. You, you built, built this, this as, we, this as you said at your convention. You built this. And this is the consequence of your ideas in action. Yep. That is a, that is a, they would, again, rather chew their own arm off the deal with that facing that reality about themselves. So they'd rather blame somebody else. And it's always easier to blame welfare queens and the hippies and the hippies we love yeah. to deal with the fact that your economic and cultural model has failed because you don't know the difference between outcomes and causes. causes. Yep. Yep. I love what you had to say about who you would be happy to talk to, to about deficits. <laughs> I would be happy to. Seriously, I'll meet you on any street corner. No, I really won't. But I'd be happy to talk to anybody about deficits who didn't vote for George W. Bush. Yep. Yep. Because and, if you and, voted for George W. Bush twice, the first you time— You voted for the tax cuts in the in the Senate. The first time you voted for George W. Bush, you voted for a guy who was running on a platform of, let's get rid of those horrible surpluses. Yeah. And, and okay— um, and you voted against a bunch of Democrats who were saying, uh, maybe we shouldn't, because remember the last 12 years we had these horrible deficits and we finally dug our way out of those things. And are you sure you really want to get rid of surpluses? Maybe we should, I don't know, strengthen all those social programs you said we couldn't have. Or maybe put that money into Social Security. <laughs> oh, no, no, says David Brooks. That's so, your no, money. Yeah. Social Security will be fine. Everything will be fine. Everything could, We can have all this shit and tax cuts, too. Anybody who voted for George W. Bush in 2000 believed that. Mm -hmm. So you need to shut up now. Anybody who voted for Bush in 2004 voted for, ah, fuck deficits. Deficits don't matter. Ronald Reagan taught us deficits don't matter. Mm -hmm. So you need to shut the fuck up twice as much now. And anybody who didn't, didn't fall for that bullshit and who isn't living in some libertarian fantasy land where if we just went back to the gold standard. <laughs> um, uh I don't want to talk to you. I, I'd be happy to have a beer with you and listen to you say funny things that I will laugh at. Maybe you have some good ideas. You probably want to legalize pot. That's fine with me. But anybody who voted for George Bush twice, you need to shut up about deficits because you clearly have no fucking idea what you're talking about because you only got angry about deficits when Bill Clinton became president and was forced to clean up George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan's deficit mess. And when Barack Obama became president, it was forced to clean up George W. Bush's mess that you created. So shut up about deficits already. Again, and if you weren't in that crowd, be happy to talk deficits with you. Every week we post to our website and Facebook page an Internet Kitty sent in by you, the listeners. This week's Internet Kitty is Bungie, who is named such because he bounces around a lot. Bungie is always photographed while sleeping <laughs> because otherwise he's just a blur. <laughs> You can send your internet kitty to us at our email address, proleftpodcast at gmail.com, where you can also write to both of us. We love hearing from you. Please feel free to write us. Be aware that if you write us at any of our addresses, we reserve the right to read your email or U.S. Postal Service Go Postal Union letter on the air unless you say otherwise. So, Driftglass, how are the Internet Kitties doing this week? Well, Blue Gal, the Internet Kitties are begging J.J. Abrams to wipe out the Ewoks and Jar Jar Binks in some kind of Reservoir Dog-style shootout. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the bopping and the loving, loving, loving. Let's forget about the whining and the crying and the shooting and the dying and the fellow with a switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. The Professional F Podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2013, Driftglass Blue Gal Podcast.